The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. And this week, we're talking to Kate Pearson of the B-52s about licorice, drinking collard green juice, and the real-life love shack. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Hey, welcome to the Winemakers. This is Brian Casey with Sam Katuri and Bart Hansen. We've got a special guest today. We've got Esther Mobley in the house. She is the wine writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, formerly of the Wine Spectator uh, in New York, big city. And um, we've been anxious to get you on for a long time. And I'm, I'm curious to know how your job has changed over the last month. I know one of your favorite things to do was riding around in cars with winemakers because you kind of got a <laughs> intimate, real, genuine moments there. I actually thought of a show for you called Going Mobile with Esther Mobley, where it'll be kind of like <laughs> carpool karaoke, you know, but you've got Esther and a winemaker in a car riding together. Or maybe it's like the, what's the Jerry Seinfeld show? Yeah, with, the, with the comedians, yeah. yeah. Getting coffee with comedians in cars or something. Yeah. I've always wondered though, like, what's the ca- what kind of camera setup do you have to have in order to like get capture you while you're driving and someone else is there? I think they have like four GoPros and they just exactly. clip on to the visor, and you could clip one in the back seat. And I think that's how they do it on on carpool karaoke. It's so a good just, idea. Just a thought, Esther, in case you're <laughs> look, you know, in the future looking for a new a new platform. But didn't you see they they busted carpool karaoke? They're not actually driving. They're they're on a trailer. Uh, no, no, that was older. Sam. That was that was fake news. That was a picture. Oh, of, I think that was in New York. I think they had to tow the car somewhere, and so someone just took a picture of it on the um, on the back getting towed and said, "Oh, the whole thing's a scam." But no, that was uh, it, it's the you, real you, deal, Sam. Come on, you can't have some faith anymore. <laughs> so Esther what is it like now not being able to get out and talk to people well um you know I'm working from home like everyone is and um I feel lucky to be able to work full-time from home I mean um the whole Chronicle newsroom is now dispersed in our little individual domiciles but um we're still putting out the news and the the big change I mean the bigger changes have not been not getting out to do in-person reporting because I've always done a lot of reporting over the phone anyway. Um, but the bigger changes are just like, it's, it's been this kind of all hands on deck mentality at the paper lately. And I've been doing a lot of non-wine stories. Um, yeah. It's just kind of whatever, whatever's needed. And in fact, the, the food department, which I'm a part of, has remained intact, but I mean, think about like our sports department and uh, our arts critics. I mean, there's entire beats that are 
um, really fundamentally changed right now. And so there's been a lot of reshuffling about, you know, around what reporters are doing. Um, and I, I feel, you know, it's been fun that I can still report on wine, even though a lot of the news isn't fun. Um, but yeah, but I'm making a lot of phone calls. I've done some Zoom reporting excursions uh, and I'm just kind of figuring it all out. Um, I'm doing a lot of my own photography right now. I'm like doing a lot of bottle shots. I, I invested in a nicer lens for my DSLR, but um, I think I'm running out of backgrounds because I have a small one bedroom apartment and <laughs> soon I'm gonna have to like figure out something else, uh, another way to shoot wine bottles. <laughs> Wait, so you're not using the light box and just having that glowing wine label? No, although that's I I probably should order something. Yeah, I've I've seen those um, being offered at a reduced price right now on um, Instagram, but they all look the same. You know, it's just the it's the bottle and its perfection. Yeah, you know, I have a little balcony here and a backyard, and I've been trying to like you know put the wine bottles there, but um, it's gonna get old. It has gotten old. Yeah. <laughs> so are you in are you in San Francisco? Yeah, I live in the Richmond district in San Francisco. Nice. And what's that the weather is, today in the Richmond district? It's actually overcast, which is nice because I have my, my little desk set up here facing directly out a window. And most days I have to pull down the blinds because it's been so sunny lately. But um, it's kind of, you know, it's a classic foggy Western San Francisco day to day. That's what we'd expect from the Richmond district, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Burn off around one o'clock. Right. Roll back in at about four o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> it's been like kind of uncomfortably sunny the last couple of days. And the way our apartment is situated, it faces directly east. And we have like kind of almost an entire wall of windows. And it can get kind of hot in here. And of course, we don't have AC. No one in San Francisco has AC. So yeah. But stay stand in front of your wine fridge. What do you got set up for a wine fridge, Esther? Uh, it's right here. I don't know if you guys want to see it. Yeah. How many, how many bottles can you hold in there? This is like, um, I mean, that's like maybe a hundred bottles and then, oh my God, you don't want to see the rest of it. I just have boxes and boxes and boxes over there at the edge of my living room. I have a little wine rack here. Um, and I have a garage. See, Sam, we could have sent her wines and she would have never even known that we sent them. No, I do know. Oh my gosh, I'm getting the, the delivery bags constantly. And um, I've, had to, I've had to tell people to stop sending samples here. I gave my address out to a few producers and now I'm starting, I've been getting wine samples from people I did not give my address to. So <laughs> someone's like trading that information and there's nowhere else to store wine. I mean, I have... I probably have about 10 cases stacked in my apartment. And then downstairs in our garage, we have more. But it's my dream. <laughs> the, Chronicle, the Chronicle, actually, we have a big wine cellar um, at the Chronicle. And so normally, you know, it's not a problem, but um, it's become a problem. <laughs> no one feels sympathy. Yeah, 90, 99% of people out there are gonna go, whatever but those of us that get it i know sam sam gets it sam's got a nice little cellar at the at the tasting house too and um which is it's a capacity anyway yeah 
I'm actually, I'm actually, uh, because I'm, I'm trying to buy less wine than I usually do right now. So I've, I've actually made some dents in, in the cellar, trying to make a little room and, and, um, you know, I'm drinking wine at home, which I don't usually do. Um, I'm usually, you know, it's either tasting or drinking on the job or, or at dinners, you know, usually at, wine, at home, it's, maybe a cider or something so i've been drinking wine at home and now of course my house is you know maybe it doesn't quite look like esther's apartment but there's wine everywhere and i am um, i'm told about it frequently by the other <laughs> residents of my house who who speak so there's only one of those <laughs> yeah. do you have do you have like a lot of partially drunk bottles in your fridge too i i, I do and you know what i've been i started this whole situation i was like gonna be trying you know be cute and clever and i came up with a, a hashtag quaravin kind of combining quarantine and, and quaravin <laughs> um and then i found that i was like quaravin in half a bottle and i should just open them so the the quaravin the quaravin concept died an early death um and i've just been <laughs> opening opening wine <laughs> drinking wine yeah, yeah once have, once you hit I, that Coravin four times in an hour, <laughs> what's yeah, the point? Exactly. You're like, what, what am I doing? <laughs> We're just opening this bottle. Yeah, yeah. who, who are you fooling? Time, I spent a little time organizing my wine refrigerator, and I realized that, you know, it's like two bottles deep, and I realized all the bottles that were behind that I pulled out something in front and found a bunch of gems, but um, I'm, I'm trying to resist just opening them, you know? I'd rather... Oh. My, my wife won't appreciate them as much as you guys will, and so I'll save them for when we can podcast together, you know? Yeah. It's a dangerous game, though. Like, I mean, at a certain point, you have to just open a wine if you want to drink it and not worry, oh, is the, exactly the right person here with me? You're right. We're in the wine business. We are totally on board with that mentality. Yeah. <laughs> keep drinking. We'll keep making it. Right. <laughs> There's Tuesday a lot of is a good there. day. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, sure. yeah, sorry, article about the, the bulk wines. And I think we were talking about that last week too, where I'm curious to get back um, to the Fairmont and do some tasting of, um, of new rosés because I know there's going to be a lot of people emailing me um, wanting, to get, wanting to get rid of some wine when we finally get back to business here. Yeah, I, you know, um, it's interesting. So, right, I have this article out this week that'll be in this Sunday's paper about, uh, which was, I don't know when this is going to air, April 19th Sunday paper, about two new brands that are um, repackaging bulk wine with slightly different business models. One that's kind of selling them as futures, although it's only like six weeks in the future. And another um, from Michael Terrian that is dynamic pricing. So the price of the wine goes up as more people buy it. And if not a lot of people buy it, it'll go down. It starts at a dollar a bottle. Um, and, uh, you know, both of these are, are kind of reflecting, I think, what the bulk wine market looked like a few months ago when it was at really, really low levels. And for the article, as I was reporting it, I was talking to Glenn Proctor from Ciotti, and he was explaining to me that now some prices are starting to firm up as there's this kind of crazy spike in um, off-premise wine sales. So, you know, our, the, the prices of bulk wine sounds to me like they're not quite what they were three, four months ago. You guys might know better than I. But, um, 
yeah, it seems like there's there was this kind of perfect storm of too many grapes planted a few years ago, stagnating sales, and then suddenly everyone's like able to buy hundred dollar Napa Cabernet for twenty dollars a gallon or something. Yeah, well, that and now Snoop Dogg's got his own label. You know? <laughs> the nineteen crimes <laughs> thing, yeah, yeah. That was only a matter of time. I mean, he had that show with Martha Stewart, and yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I talked to Glenn Proctor a couple months about getting him on the podcast because Glenn, Glenn has a great kind of look at the big bulk industry, and um, but we, we've had a hard time connecting. But um, he's a yeah. great interview and um, has a great way of of kind of uh, summarizing what I think is often a really wonky, complicated side of the industry in um, ways that I can understand. <laughs> Um, Where are these people going to sell all these bulk wines? I mean, I understand that, that off-premise sales are up, um, and we'll see how long that lasts for. But in my you know, understanding of what the market looked like was there was plenty of you know, already bottled wine that wasn't moving, and that's you know, where these things are going. So I, I, did that, has that come up in, in your discussions about this? Like, I mean, well, you know, it's obviously geared towards off-premise, right? Well, the two brands I wrote about this week, one's called De Negose, and um, it's from Cameron Hughes, and then this other one, Bisher, from Michael Terry, and they're both direct-to-consumer, so both of them are just selling from their websites. That's part of the pitch, it's that they're able to, um, you know, cut down on the the three-tier system markups um, to offer good pricing. Yeah, kind of like Naked Wines, you know, they've got their their customer base is already there. Um, yeah, they sent me, um, I need to respond to them, but they sent me an email saying they're having this enormous spike in sales and they're like hiring a ton of people right now, which obviously a lot of other companies are not doing. Interesting. Yeah, well, and that's where a lot, I'm sure a lot of the bulk juice is going too, is companies like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think, you know, there's, I don't know what the kind of long-term ramifications of this economic downturn are going to be for wine sales, but probably even already I've been getting emails from readers that are like, I'm only going to buy 20 to $30 wine now. You know, I'm afraid of this recession and there may just be this kind of initial shock and people wanting to buy less expensive wine, maybe even if, um, you know, even if their job hasn't yet been affected, who knows? Yeah. Well, and- isn't that kind of where wine sales were heading anyway before before all of this went down that you know the the premium brand you know the ultra premium was was is what it is and but you know where there was actually you know action and growth seemed to be in that sort of mid market price range um you know so i mean i think that that's you know sort of this this trend line um and then that is going to be flooded because there's all that bulk. There's so much juice, 18 and 19. That I think there's going to be a lot of stuff coming in that range. Yeah. I mean, obvious, you know, I think last harvest season, given the, the kind of situation of grape buying and a lot of farmers choosing to just let their grapes fall to the ground rather than harvesting them and selling them for a super low price that would then affect the average, that would then affect the amount they could ask next year. Um, 
everyone's like, oh, our wine price is going to plummet. And you're like, well, it takes a while, right? There's like this whole cycle of vintages. But so I think this is kind of an early, early on indication of where other things might go. Yeah. We'll see. But the, I mean, the, it's hard to know what to make of it all because there's this huge spike in off-premise. But then, of course, there's an entire sector of the industry where wine sales happen, Brian, you know, that um, is just completely dormant right now. And um, I have this impression, oh, everyone's, you know, people are buying wine directly from wineries. But then I've been hearing from winemakers that that's not the case. So I think there's like a lot of conflicting messages we're getting we're hearing oh everyone's drinking more but then it's like are people just drinking more stuff that they're buying at Safeway yeah I'm almost anticipating when we do open the restaurant again to see a lot of people bringing in um, bottles of Bogle Chardonnay and just paying the corkage fee because they've got you know cases of 10 to 20 dollar wine that they're right sitting on. right yeah, which will be interesting. But it's kind of, you know, it's it's kind of like gas though, you know, the price of gas has pretty much stayed the same, but no one's driving anywhere. So I don't know, I don't know how they reconcile that, that, I mean, I've been on half a tank for probably two weeks. All I'm doing is, you know, going back and forth to Oliver's or Costco or something. But um, I mean, the price is still, it's like 330, 340 a gallon. So, I mean, maybe <laughs> we've take- we've driven our car less than a mile in the last month i mean it's yeah. just a couple we live we live walking distance from all these great little produce markets on clement street so we're doing a lot of our grocery shopping there and we we walk it's two blocks it's only when we need like the big um major grocery store events but it's crazy we might yeah. as well not have a car <laughs> yeah yeah, I think some insurance companies were actually letting people slide on a month or two of paying the insurance on your cars because they, they knew that you weren't driving. Well, what kind of shows are you getting hooked on, Esther? <laughs> you know what we started? Well, okay, so um, we watch a lot of... Uh, the show that we've been watching a lot of lately is this Canadian sitcom called Letter Kenny. Letter, Letter Kenny? One word, it's the name of a fictional town in Ontario. Have you guys ever heard of this? No. It's spelled just like it sounds, Letter Kenny. Um, it's, it's just this totally absurd Canadian comedy about this small town. And um, is it as bad as Trailer Park Boys? It's, it's so much better than Trailer Park Boys. It's so <laughs> much better. I mean, there's this similar kind of like hick Canadian thing going on, but it's like, world's better it's so funny um and then we just started we like finished that whole series um and then we just started watching the the nick curl animated show big mouth have you guys seen that it's really funny yeah i know a lot of people that are that are hooked on that one and then i saw that kids in the hall is making a reboot oh wow (laughs) and i i don't know if there will be an interest or not but i mean if you look at some of the so if you go back and watch some of the older shows, uh, some of the stuff I don't know that you would be able to do now. It's just in the in the world that we're living in. Um, right. It's just changed a little bit, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know um, we were watching the, the Tiger King, but I, that was one night. Oh, yeah, we watched that. We, we, we did that. I mean, it was great. Um, but actually, I kind of, I, we, we watched that. We also watched McMillions. 
um, about the McDonald's monopoly fraud. I kind of liked that almost better. I don't know. By the time I watched Tiger King, everyone had told me. I think it got a little overhyped in my head. Pretty saturated pretty quickly. Yeah, now TikTok is full of everyone doing their their Tiger yeah. King dances and everything. It's been pretty ludicrous. <laughs> I don't I don't know if I mentioned this to you guys or not, but have you seen um the uh on Netflix Rotten? It's a docu-series. Um really good about the food industry. Um mm. you know, one of the stories is about the uh the avocado business and the uh mm. the cartels being involved and how Yeah, to straight up mafia. Yeah, and then there was another one that was really good about the French, um, the French wine terrorists, um, and, and there's some pretty funny stories in that. So that's a great series to kind of check out. There's a great one on bottled water. Um, mm. So yeah, cool. That's a great tip. Did you guys watch the Uncorked movie on Netflix? Someone sent me an, uh, a message yet. the other day saying that I had to watch that. What is it about? Well, it's, it has the, the title Uncorked is completely undescriptive, but um, it's about, a, it's, a, it's a fictional story, but it's about a, a guy in Memphis whose dad wants him to take over the family barbecue stand, but he wants to become a master sommelier instead. Wow. And, and this is from, from D-Lynn, right? From D-Lynn was a producer on it. His brother, okay. so yeah, D-Lynn Proctor, his brother's a film producer you know, by trade and um, got Dylan interested in it, but it's really cool. I mean, it's a majority black cast for a wine movie, which you never see. I mean, it's, you'll, you'll watch it and you'll, you'll, you'll be like, oh, they didn't get that quite right about like the, especially you, Brian, the Psalm world, but um, it's not meant to be an exact realistic representation. And I mean, there's a lot of bad wine movies that I've seen over the years, and I actually think it's like one of the best. And, and a lot of cameos for wineries in it too, right? I, I don't, was that totally that article, or was it the Spectator or the Speculator? Um, uh, I mean, I well, we all wrote about it. Okay, got to write about it. I but, guess. But, it, but, but there um, no, there is a ton of yeah. No, there's a ton. Um, it's funny. Yeah, like they mention Antica Terra. They mention. Um, Fantasca Dylan's thing. They talk about Grange. There's like a ton of shots of um, Albert Bichot, the winery in Chablis. And when I interviewed the director, I was kind of like, was this like placed? And he was like, I just love that wine. And they said we could film there. And so they like go on and on about it. It's cute. It's cute. But you know, there's like some things where they, there's like a line now I'm going to forget it where they almost like make it sound like Sonoma's different from the Russian River Valley or there's some things you would watch and be like, oh, like that's not totally exactly right. When, well, when people say, oh, we love coming to Sonoma, the Napa Valley is so beautiful. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not just on that show. That happens. I can't tell you how many times at the Fairmont that happens where I hear people on their cell phones in the lobby and they're like, yeah, we're in Napa. And I just want to smack the phone out of their hand. <laughs> <laughs> they have no idea. Right, right. Well, Nasser, how do you get how do you get product placement on some of those movies or shows? You know, we've 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 mentioned that on the podcast a couple of times. I've I've put the word out there to any producers or directors saying, you know, if you want any sixteen six hundred or Dane Sellers wine, just reach out to us. We're happy to send you a case. 
<clears throat> you know, like the Paul Meyer Chardonnay in Disclosure. Oh my where, gosh. You know, yeah, where that's a, like, where it's a yeah. pivotal moment in the movie. I mean, that would be great to get one of your wines in there, but I don't know. <laughs> there must be some huge submission thing that you have to go through and probably a lot of wine gets sent to five guys in LA that have an enormous seller because of that. I have no idea how that works. I mean, actually, that would be an interesting piece to write. Um, I have no clue. You know, I've I've certainly like taken notice when wines get a kind of prominent spot in TV shows, and when the um, Netflix movie Wine Country came out, which is bad. I'm sure, you guys all saw it. Not a not a good film. Um, <laughs> I remember I was like trying to take notes of all the bottles I saw. Like I could, you know, and it was. Um, took place in Napa and I remember seeing Viadere in there and but you don't I you know I assume some of those they're just in there for to be in there yeah I remember it used to be just the old Chianti bottles with the with the, the fiasco basket you know those fiascos. used to be at, at every table yeah and now I I love seeing when you see a wine bottle I'm almost like pausing and trying to figure out okay what is that that they're yeah drinking? yeah I was doing that when we were watching something last night. Now I can't remember. But there, I was like, oh, oh, we watched Sex, Lies, and Videotape, the old oh, um, wow. Andy McDowell movie. And there's a scene, I, it was an Italian wine, and it might have been like a generic label. And that movie's from 1989, so who knows if I would be able to recognize, you know, a label now. But yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, it's fun. It's a fun game, especially when you're right. bored at home indefinitely right. like we are now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We've been uh, we we watch a lot of cheesy mystery TV around here, and uh, my wife loves the Agatha Raisin series of of British murder mystery novels, which has become a television show. They are drinking wine constantly in the really, show. and there's this like you know sort of noble Britishman, uh, you know Sir Charles, who's always talking about like you know the the coat of bone coming out of his cellar and you know they go to these pubs in the english countryside and order pinot grigio it's uh and and healthy healthy pores too so if you want to like <laughs> you know have some some mindless uh british mystery novel with a side of wine uh you can catch a couple of eggs it's on uh it's on amazon prime in the 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 acorn collection or whatever that means but that's a good tip it's it's, you a, know, it's a good balance between my wife's love of cheesy british mysteries and at least some extra wine on the side for me <laughs> <laughs> so when um when i worked at kenwood uh that was when the i was just looking it up trying to remember the movie the firm came out and there's a mm. scene in the firm where he um he gets the big job and he goes to buy a bottle of wine and it's a bottle of kenwood shard and it, it was a full label shot. And the comment was, there's even a Wow. Cork. There's even a cork in it? A cork in it. And that was <laughs> the line. And, and they, in the tasting room, they rode that man. They had buttons made up for everybody that said, there's even a cork in it. <laughs> and that was a placement. Um, it was purely a thing that Marty Lee had met um, someone who was a producer and um you know one of those things can you send me a case of wine and marty sent him a case of wine and did unbeknownst to anybody it, it made the movie so um that's amazing that's amazing that's so cool yeah maybe we just need to start sending wine to random producers in la 
Well, you know, then there was the, the, the other story I have kind of on the same lines is there was a picture of the lead singer from the Stone Temple Pilots. Um, he passed away recently. Trent, um, Trent Reznor? Actually, no. No, 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 that's, um, that's not his nails. Yeah, uh, anyway, it, 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 yeah, he passed away a few years ago. But the picture was of him drinking a bottle of Jack London Cabernet, like out of the bottle. <laughs> And it was purely, it was Jacqueline and Cabernet. But the bad thing about it was, is the article was about how he was back in for um, heroin rehab again. <laughs> <laughs> but in People Magazine, you know? Well, uh, yeah, I guess any publicity is good publicity. <laughs> yep. Well, right. you guys want to, can we, can we talk a little? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Bart. I was wondering if we can talk a little bit about climate change, because I know, um, it's one of the things you like to write about, um, Esther. And we did a podcast maybe six months ago with Leo McCloskey from Enologics here in Sonoma, who does um, forecast models. Um, and and we all kind of were taken aback, I think, about, I mean, just very directly how he said that Napa is going to become too hot to grow Cabernet and was making recommendations of other varietals that he thought we should start planting. And I think that's a, one of those stories that's going to kind of slowly trickle out over the next five years as to how people are actually going to start setting themselves up for the future and what that looks like. Yeah, so I, I did a lot of reporting on that last summer um, where Larkmead and Spotswood in Napa Valley are both planting experimental vineyards with, you know, warm climate grapes like Tariga Nacional and Tempranillo. Uh, trying to kind of figure out, you know, will those fare better? And there's, you know, I don't, I, I certainly don't have any numbers off the top of my head about where the Winkler index, you know, what, at what year the, the Napa Valley surpasses into a new Winkler index category. But um, the projections are certainly within all of our lifetimes. And um, if you think about the kind of life cycle of grapevines, you have to start figuring it out probably sooner rather than later. One thing that I thought was really interesting is, um, you know, in, in think about like Napa Valley versus Bordeaux, where Napa Valley is so tied to Cabernet. Bordeaux is not tied to Cabernet any more than to Merlot or any of its other red grape varieties. And it's just red wine from Bordeaux. Yeah. Um, and there's already several prominent Napa Valley wineries that just call themselves Napa Valley red wine. Harlan, for instance, Dominus. I mean, could everyone just kind of like blend together whatever red grapes, maybe it includes Cabernet, but it's rounded out with these other things. Is there like a, a, a branding repositioning where you can just become red wine of Napa Valley or Sonoma County or I mean, whatever it is, but they're so tied to like this specific grape variety and I mean the then you know for that story too I interviewed Andy Beckstoffer who is very much his position is Cabernet is not going anywhere it's kind of a sensationalist thing to say you know that's a provocative headline but come on and he's he has a, um, he has a billion reasons for Cabernet exactly <laughs> exactly and He's under. He's been undertaking this major research project at um, one of his Lake County vineyards, where he also has a lot of Cabernet planted, 
where with UC Davis, he's experimenting with different clone and rootstock combinations and trying to figure out, I mean, is there a way to kind of still have Cabernet, but mitigate its, um, it, you know, the effects of heat on it with these right. other factors? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it, it, it has to happen at some point, right? I mean, just the way we all know that, um, that climate change is real and that grape varieties are, you know, incredibly sensitive to climate variations and that the, the time, you know, the period during harvest season when a grape variety can ripen totally determines its quality. Um, so the question is just like, can, uh, to me, the interesting question is, can we somehow be more flexible in our, identi our, our identification of American wine regions with specific grape varieties? Right, which is, which Burgundy like doesn't have the freedom to do. Like what the hell is conversation like going on there right now with, you know, right. and does a Tempranillo from Napa command as much money as a cab? Is it tied to real estate prices or is it tied to the market? Like, is it market driven? So, you know, can you charge $150 for a bottle of Tempranillo from Napa because it's coming from a renowned vineyard or, or a, certain um aba well you also might not have to though brian i mean some of these varieties you know the thing about cabernet and and certainly you know napa cab carries cachet and gets priced accordingly because of where it's grown and and who makes it in the whole deal it also is and you know pinot noir is a similar story that it's it's expensive to grow to to you know the farming costs to make a cabernet uh, the way they do in napa uh, you know, Enterprise Vineyards at Oakville Ranch, it's $15,000 plus an acre annual farming cost. And if you plant in, you know, Tempranillo, you probably don't have to work it quite as hard as you would a Cabernet. So say you're making, you know, now you make just Napa Valley red wine and, and you're not Harlan or Dominus. Um, it's possible that you could still be <laughs> profitable and, and make, you know, similar types of margins with you know lower lower farming costs and maybe therefore maybe this is you know timed perfectly with you know whatever sort of economic realities we're facing in the you know near term um that it's it's timed right to hey have really great napa style red wines um that don't necessarily have to be you know three figures pushing four figure bottle prices uh, you know maybe that's a pollyanna look at it but that's no that's really interesting that actually it's not just market prices that determine the the cost of napa cabernet grapes it's actually just that it's like a higher maintenance grape variety than some others yeah and it's in fact especially in a climate change reality and this is something that we you know obviously are facing now it's not about the future where um you know changing your irrigation systems changing you know where the fruit zone is you know relative to the to the vine height and trellises um the shade cloth projects the the misting projects those are all just in making it more expensive to grow cabernet than than it was already so um, mm, good point you know, that's good definitely point. definitely a, a piece of it you know that's why um you know napa grenache uh doesn't cost nearly as much to farm you're going to pick it about the same time and and get you know not the same flavors but but signature napa valley type of flavors um for for a lot less 
you know, higher yield and, and lower farming costs, not to, um, you know, self-promote too much, but that's... Yeah, I was going to no. say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know someone that's got a little Grenache in Napa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the only Napa, the only Grenache in Oakville, as I, as I researched. You know, and then the other thing that Leo said that was, Brian, and help me remember this, he was advocating that wineries get away from making different varietals that that you like claim that this is where I'm putting my, this is what I make and it would be one variety. Um, yeah, I forget it. Yeah, it was something like Vermentino or it was something that he was saying would be a perfect varietal. And he was saying basically plant your flag and saying this is what Napa is gonna be known for now is this varietal because it does well here. But, but see, doesn't that just delay like having to then reassess what the, the kind of identity of it is 30 years in the future yeah yeah i just feel like we i i don't know i mean to me it seems like a dangerous game to be kind of constantly being like this region is you know this great variety and um i don't know i mean the market changes like you know things kind of go in and out of style to some extent i mean the sonoma county grape growers have a little bit done that to sonoma county and the sonoma sonoma, sonoma county vintners Unfortunately, in saying that, you know, Sonoma's very diverse, but they put a big stake in promoting Chardonnay and, and Pinot, and probably to the detriment to other varieties in Sonoma County. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't know if it's to the detriment of Sonoma County or not. Certainly, it seems like it's been successful, right? Like, uh, well, bring you know, in, bringing people, people in. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think there's just this irresistible temptation to um, be like, oh, we're like Burgundy, or we're like Bordeaux, or we're like the Rhone. And you're like, see, we, you know, we have the same latitude, or we have a similar climate band, or, um, and therefore, we are like the Burgundy of the West, or whatever we say. So, I mean, I think it's like, we can, that's just the, the framework we operate in when we talk about wine. It's like, you can't really escape it. Um, so I get it. Um, but I just feel like, you know, maybe it's, and then it does basically, what about when you have a grape variety that's not from kind of a classic marquee region like Vermentino, which I think is like a extremely promising grape for California. I've been drinking so many amazing California Vermentinos, especially from kind of warm climate areas like Paso or the foothills. And it just seems like, why are, why is everyone not making Vermentino? Like it's a grape variety that can be super kind of bright and zippy in really warm climates. And it kind of can fit this Sauvignon Blanc profile, but sometimes, you know, maybe be more interesting in some cases, not all. And, um, but like people don't really, you're not going to be like, oh, we're the um, Liguria of California. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds foreign though, Esther. Vermentino. <laughs> Where is that from? You know, we are. I already can't get people to order Gunlock Bunchu wines on the list just because I, I know people just don't know how to pronounce certain things. And so they're oh. almost afraid to even ask questions. Speaking of which, Esther, I think you would be one of the greatest Psalms ever if you ever decided to change your career. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. Thanks. Well, I, th I think it's because now Psalms are kind of into telling the story of the wine. I think 99% of the time when I'm selling wine on the floor, I'm not talking about blackberry and anise and cloves. And um, I'm actually telling the story of the winemaker and the, and the region. And 
so the the story seems to almost hold a lot more weight now than it than it used to and i think you have a natural curiosity so i think you'd be probably the you could probably get paid pretty good too if you decided i'm going to come out as a song who who wants it <laughs> well that's that's good to know. I mean, you never know where the economy is going to go with this, so I may need to <laughs> figure something else out. <laughs> well, what are some of your favorite regions that, that a lot of people don't know about? I think um, Alder Springs, I think you like um, that vineyard up there. Uh, but what are some, or, and I know, um, who was it, Bill Easton at Terra Rouge just got 100 points mm -hmm. for his Syrah. Um, so kind of a, you know, it's a region that a lot of people aren't drinking out of, but what are some of your favorite little regions that you don't think get a lot of exposure? Yeah, I I love the Easton wines in that corner of Amador County. I think he's been doing great things for a long time. Um, I love the Alder Springs wines. I've actually never been to Alder Springs. It's really out of the way. And wow. I wanted to write a, a big profile of Stu Bewley a few years ago and because he's the wine, the wine cooler guy. It's like such a good story. And then Eric Asimov came out with the story right when I was trying to play plan a visit up there but he's got crazy grape varieties planted up there to not and um anyway it's really interesting um i think there's a lot of cool stuff happening all over california i mean i love this i love the central coast i think there's really interesting little pockets there uh you know i think ed like edna valley i think is kind of actually an interesting little spot that doesn't get a lot of attention i've been drinking it's funny i certain vineyards like keep coming up and I'm like, oh, this must be kind of a large and affordable vineyard for a lot of young producers. Like um, there's a lot of inland Mendocino vineyards. I feel like I've been getting samples of from um, vineyards like Poor Ranch. I've been, for some reason, I've been getting a lot of wines from different producers from the Barsati Vineyard in El Dorado. And there's some really interesting stuff there. Um, so I, but I don't know, that's not really that helpful. I think there's, I mean, there's wine regions basically all over frigging California. And um, I, I love Sonoma Valley wines. I love Santa Cruz mountain wines. Well, yeah, and those vineyards you're talking about, I think that's because of, um, you know, crush pads being so accessible for people that are just making small lots of wine. So a yeah. person like myself can, can purchase a ton or three tons or five tons and actually make a wine. So you get, you can see a lot of um, different wines coming out from the same vineyard, whereas before it would be, you know, that was the winery that owned that property and they would come out with it. Now you can have 10, 15 different people sourcing out of one vineyard and all coming up with different expressions of it. Totally. And um, it's kind of cool. I mean, those, I like, I like finding stories like that when there's a vineyard that has been kind of interpreted by a lot lot of different people and if there's an interesting story one story I loved reporting a few years ago was on the Evangelo Vineyard in Contra Costa County um, and he Frank Evangelo the owner the guy who did own that has since died but um, yeah I, I mean those to me are just super cool I loved I wrote a story about the Bechtold Vineyard in Lodi that has these 150 year old Senso vines last year um, really cool unusual kind of counterintuitive vineyard in terms of the wines it produces given that it's in Lodi. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've never been there, but wasn't it you, Bart, that was saying that there's like a big PG&E presence there? Like there's a lot of towers. Well, around in, that at Evangelo. At Evangelo. Is that yeah. at Evangelo? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Desire Lines are friends of the program. The Cody and Emily Ratches. And actually I have a bottle here in my 
collection of bottles that I need to drink. Uh, they, <laughs> you know, they do they have like little sketches on each label, sort of representing the vineyard sites. And their their Evangelo has these big, you know, uh, PG&E <laughs> transmission lines going across the going across the label. It's a uh, it's a it's a wild place out there. I mean, grown in sand, own rooted, but also like in the middle of you know. it's so weird there's there's like amtrak train lines going right through it and um it's really sad actually i mean there's these super old vines and pg and e at one point claimed imminent domain because it needed it wanted to root some kind of pipes through and it tore it like made you know it it got county permission to tear out all these vines and it compensated frank a dollar fifty per vine for these like hundred year old they're like well that's what a new one would cost and um for your like you know whatever he's got like palomino interspersed with all this he called it kerrigan kerrigan (laughs) um so anyway but yeah then there's just these power lines right through it well the the one the saving grace there is uh you know the the guys at bedrock of I, I don't know if they leased it from PG. They, they own. They, they own, own it, it now. Just, yeah. Um, yeah. And they're you know they, they are the historical vineyard society with a couple of you know with Tegan and some others. So um, you know as long as people keep buying Bedrock wine, um, Evangelo will still be vineyards and not you know Burger Kings and housing tracks. So exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so we I, we did send you this whole list of. <laughs> different stories of yours that, that we'd all read and talked about um, and you know to sort of briefly um, run through it but I, I think the one the one that and I said this in the email mm-hmm. um, the one that I loved the most and identified with the most and actually um, one of the people who works in my tasting room is of the baby carrot generation and like grew up on baby <laughs> carrots at her house in Southern California and, we, and, and I opened a cork bottle yesterday and I was like, oh, it smells like baby carrot. Um, <laughs> talk about that one a little bit, just because, uh, you know, I know it wasn't like a feature article. It was sort of an aside in, in, in like a little column or something. So I don't know how many people, you know, got to, got to dig on that. But the, the baby carrot phenomenon um, is, is a fascinating thing. So I had, I had heard Linda Bassan, who's a uh, professor at UC Davis speak and she mentioned that anecdote and I thought oh it's kind of funny and I like put it in my back pocket and then a few months later I was working on a story about Brett and in fact about a winemaker who was intentionally inoculating her Pinot Gris with Britannomyces and I was like that's fascinating and she her part of the kind of argument of the piece was as people are drinking kombucha and sour beer, they're like actually getting used to the flavor of bread and liking the flavor of bread. And I was like, that's really interesting. Can there actually be this like sea change in our collective palate where a lot of us, you know, think something's disgusting, but then other people who have just gotten used to it think it's delicious. Um, And then I was like, oh, I got to call up Linda Bassan and get the kind of full story of this. And um, it, you know, it was one of those things, I have this weekly email newsletter that I often get to take out a little nugget that, that didn't make it into a main story and actually tell it, which I love to be able to do. But essentially what Linda told me was um, she teaches this class on 
wine faults, or maybe it's just a general winemaking class. But part of what they do is they try to train the students to detect cork taint, TCA, and that, you know, they give, I guess they give the student, you guys might have all taken these classes, but they give the students a bunch of corks and you're supposed to be like, oh, identify the corked ones. Over time, like over the, a period of a decade, she noticed that fewer, you know, fewer and fewer students were like getting it, were able to detect the corked ones. And she's like, how can you not notice these are different? And it turns out, she thinks it's because a lot of them had grown up eating baby carrots, which are frequently corked. Um, and so, it, it, you know, we've known that all kinds of things we encountered the world are corked. Those of us who like know what it smells and tastes like. I mean, I had a corked apple the other day and some, do wow. you know, you guys have done, you guys have had this. I mean, sometimes you're walking down the street and you smell cork taint. Like you don't know what it's from. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I've found it before. Um, in Mexico, walking through the flea market you know, near the leather goods. Um, oh, and, interesting, interesting. And then another, I, these guys have heard this story, but I got to tell you, when I was at Kenwood, um, the assistant winemaker was teaching at Santa Rosa JC, and he would um, doctor wines to teach defects. And so he had a little vial of, that he got from the lab of TCA. <laughs> and he would um, keep it in the refrigerator where we kept the beer. Well, it, it made all the beer smell like it was corked. Like you'd go and open a beer and uh, it was just outer on the outer bottom ah. of the can. Um, and so we all got used to uh, corked beer quite a bit. Well, so what was so interesting to me about the cork, the carrots thing wasn't that carrots are corked, like we knew that, but it was that actually like a whole generation that grows up on this can then become inured to cork taint because they are used to it and they actually kind of like it like they have this positive association with baby carrots it's their lunch it's you know the lunch they packed their mom packed for them and right um that to me was was just fascinating and um i mean we do you know we think like oh i've trained my palate in this specific way or oh i have my own subjective individual taste but we're actually it's like we're all being shaped by these our palates are being shaped by these forces greater than ourselves yeah i actually did that at the hotel one night you know it was when vicky carroll who was here um she she runs the hospice to um and she was here visiting uh, when Sandra had her, uh, Sandra, the owner of the Girl in the Fig, had her big uh, party that night, the woman's party at Sweet D. And Vicky was staying in the hotel and I, there happened to be a bag of carrots in the back. And so I grabbed <laughs> it because I wanted to, to share it with the staff and had them all smell it and um, brought it out to Vicky. She had never heard that before. Um, and she smelled it and immediately she was like, holy shit, that totally smells like cork wine. But you're right, Esther, there might be a market out there well, it's what I'm <laughs> I mean, all this cork wine know, that's getting returned. That. Maybe we can hit these millennials for uh, for <laughs> and tap them on the market the bulk there. wine world and the cork wine world. And <laughs> for, yeah, forget testing your corks anymore, just just put it out there. If they find Not it pleasurable, me. let them have it and put and put carrots on the label, baby, baby carrot vermentino. <laughs> well, so another thing, I mean, I wrote about this in a, in a piece last year too, is this um, defect called mouse, which I actually hadn't really tasted until a couple of years ago because it pretty much only appears in wines that haven't had sulfur added to them. And I 
you know, I had, had not been drinking a lot of wines like that. And I think there's been kind of lately this proliferation of wines that identify as natural. Um, and that's something that apparently will leave aside any of the, the polemical issues that that comment raises. But just at, you know, talking about the wine defect, um, about 30% of the, the population apparently can't perceive it. So, which I thought was really interesting. Like there's this thing that to some of us is like, ew, this is really disgusting, ruins the wine. And then there's a significant portion of people who won't even care, regardless of whether they would like the taste or not, like they just can't get, get to it. The question is, is that, you know, would, do they do, would, if, if the same wine had been made and a small amount been sulfur been added and, and that, that aspect not come in the wine, would they prefer the non-mousy wine compared to the Right, that, right. That, that would be an interest. that is an interesting question, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting, Bart. To, I've never thought about that, of taking um, a bottle of wine that I, that I pulled a cork on and, and found out that it was corked and then pulling another bottle and doing a side-by-side -side tasting with some of the, because most of the staff that I work with are younger, um, you know, they're under 30. And I, that would be kind of kind of an interesting tasting to put them both side-by-side -side and say, hey, you guys, tell me what you think of each one of these wines and which one you like better. And if they would actually pick out Prefer. the, the corked, corked <laughs> wine. Yeah. You know, I mean, this has happened in, in different tasting rooms along the years where you know the wine the winemaking staff's always like you guys got to taste the wines before you open you got to taste them and you go in at the end of the day and you have a glass of wine with the staff and they pour you something and it's like corked and it was like oh i bet you didn't sell much sauvignon blanc today did you well no actually no you know and the bottle's corked and nobody even knows it and um and 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 the customer doesn't know that it's corked the customer knows that they don't really like that wine um, right so they might not they might not be able to say why but like something. Yeah, that was a big thing at the Girl in the Fig with, you know, just the volume of it, pushing so many glasses of wine over the bar because the servers didn't pour them at table side. So everything came from the bar. And when I, whenever I saw a bartender opening up a bottle of wine and instantly pouring it into a glass, I, like my heart would hurt. I'd be like, you guys, every bottle, every bottle, every bottle, <laughs> you got to smell them all. Well, the difference between like a, a cork taint and other flaws is the cork taint takes over and, and mutes the other aromas and flavors, right? I mean, you can pour a, a wine that has mousiness, and again, we can debate whether you identify mousiness as a flaw or not, um, but a wine that has mousiness, even one that has, you know, some of my favorite wines in the world are, are have Britannomyces signatures, um, doesn't mean they take away from the varietal characteristic or the vineyard or the, or the vintage. Whereas with a corked wine, it's just cork, right? I mean, well, I don't know if I totally agree with that. I mean, I think there's some wines where Brett takes over completely. Right. And I, I've also had corked wines that are corked in pretty small degrees where I feel like I can kind of still taste the wine underneath. It kind of blows um, off. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't know if it blows off, but I, or I, I feel like I can like, I mean, sometimes, sometimes I'm sure I've tasted cork wines and not known they're corked because it's in such a small degree. And it might just be kind of like masking the, the wine, right? Like the mm -hmm. wine might be a little muted. That's, that's my understanding of it. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I mean, to me, it's like all of these things, VA, um, 
well, I'll leave. I, I was going to say something else that I think a lot of people wouldn't think of as a flaw, but um, wait, wait, you know, now I got yeah, it. Yeah, 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 no no self-centering on this podcast. I was just going to say, I don't think of this as a, as a flaw at all, but um, in terms of things that can just kind of take over a wine and you can't taste anything, but this one thing, I think I, I feel like I taste a lot of wines made by carbonic maceration that, that do that too, where all you taste is the kind of carbonic bubblegum signature and right. you don't taste the rest of the wine. But yeah. it's not, not to be clear, it's not a flaw. It's just another thing that can kind of mask the character of a wine. Will you actually talk about what the Britannomyces Pinot Grigio tasted like? Um, because I, this... uh, I read that article, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't go out and <laughs> run out and buy a bottle of it. And that, that, <laughs> there, was, uh, there was some more like questionable things that were happening there as far as like making wine in your basement. Um, but we won't go there. Uh, talk about, talk about intentionally bready Pinot Grigio. <laughs> well, it's, pro it's probably been two years since I tasted it. So I, my memory of it isn't as strong as it used to be, but I mean, it tastes, I, I recall that wine as being, uh, you know, recognizably bready. And it's interesting because a lot of bready wines that I still like, Chateauneuf de Pop or something like that, are often red wines. Um, some Burgundy, you know, I kind of am used mm. to that mingling of the bready character with these things so i don't know that i'd like ever had a a, a recognizably bready pinot gris for instance but i actually think of like you know if you're going to do it that was a good choice of grape variety i think it kind of had this little savory thing it was barely off dry that probably helped too mm. and um and you know i it's funny because i i i'm among the people who are like out there encountering sour beers sometimes when I go to craft breweries and being like, okay, I'm not used to liking this, but I'm going to try to like put on my, my open-minded hat and try to understand it for what it is. Um, so I, I'm not like, to, I don't like totally recoil when I taste something like that. And I certainly didn't when I tasted that wine. I mean, in you know, there there are those people who don't really care for Pinot Gris. You know, it's kind of a, uh, some people will mock it a little bit. And uh, do you know the reason why she picked Pinot Gris? Was it something because it is kind of a simple wine, and you know, at least California grown. Um, I've not tasted a lot of them myself. I don't know, but it was something to try to enhance it, or was it purely just an experiment? I think, well, so she was already making Pinot Gris and I think it was kind of, I mean, I shouldn't speak too much for her because now I don't know. And this was like two years ago that I reported this, but um, I think she was already making Pinot Gris and kind of thought of the wine she was making. This was a good candidate for just siphoning off a little bit. And again, she like took it out of the winery where she did custom crush to her basement so that she wouldn't risk infecting the rest of it. But she had come from a beer background. Um, her name's Mandy Donovan. She had also worked at Kane um, Winery uh, in Napa Valley on Spring Mountain, which um, is, I think, a, a Napa Valley wine that frequently shows Brett characters in a highly successful way. So I think she had had exposure to this, you know, kind of positive example of bready wine, certainly not inoculated um, but um, I think I've, I've loved many bready wines from Kane. 
I, I was thinking Pinot Gris, isn't it, Sam, maybe you could speak to it, isn't it sort of susceptible to, um, to mildew? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think because of its tight clusters yeah. or something like that, that, um, that that's why a lot of times you, you'll get a little bit of honey overtones, especially the ones grown here in California, is because you're actually getting mm -hmm. a little bit of uh, noble rot or mildew in there. So maybe I mean, the, yeah, the combination of that with the with the brett might be kind of interesting. Yeah, you know, that's definitely a problem with with the Pinot varieties, Gris and 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 Blanc and Noir. That you know it's it's susceptible to to mildew and, and to um, botrytis because of the because of the cluster dynamics. Um, right. I don't. I've never. We don't grow any of it, so I never. I don't have a ton of experience with that. Um, yeah, is there anybody? Well, I guess um, Dan O'Brien, Gail's making a Sonoma Valley Pinot Grigio, right? So there's got to be some of it happening around here. Uh, ah. Ancien um, in Carneros. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a Carneros thing. Yeah. Well, the 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 Mandy's Pinot Gris that she used is from Carneros. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. They don't they don't let us out into Carneros. They keep us in the mountains for the most part. So. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it it makes sense that it would be susceptible to botrytis because it's made as a botrytized vine, like um, in Alsace, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, Sam. What are the other stories well, the other, you wanted to yeah, hit with? I mean, I think that, uh, you know, changing generational taste preferences. Um, we should just go right into um, the 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 white claw domination <laughs> of, of the world, and and actually, I mean. This uh, conversation started because I, I I tagged Esther in a post. Um, it was a, a quote. It was a, you know a meme out of uh, uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where Charlie's going. You know everything was fine until you guys started drinking all those seltzer beers. Um, so <laughs> it is definitely um, in in this crazy spike in alcohol sales in general. Have you have you noticed? Are are people buying? what are you know is something is white claw and truly are these things you you drink at home by yourself in isolation i mean i think that's yeah i was actually thinking about this with with the beer article that you came out for me um you know beer and these seltzers are like hanging out outdoor with friends kind of beverages whereas you know by yourself or you know with a, you know whoever you're isolating and quarantining with drinking wine makes more sense i don't know that's it's just sort of like where my mind was rambling on it. Well, so um, Nielsen, et cetera, they group um, white claw, et cetera, as part of the ready to drink category with beer. So mm. along with cider. So um, like the numbers we've gotten the last few weeks about these spikes in sales, um, it, I don't know, maybe it's, if it's been separated out, I haven't seen that data, but um, you know, as with spirits and wine, it's ballooning right now compared to last year, although there was this like huge surge in the first couple of weeks of shelter in place that is now not being met. It's like plateaued a little bit. Um, but White Claw has um, taken over the world. It's pretty crazy. It happened pretty quickly. I mean, it had been around for a couple of years and then it just went bonkers last year and the growth is in the triple digit percentage range. Um, you know, I think it capitalized on a few things, like it was kind of in the right place at the right time. One is it somehow purports to be 
like uh, low calorie, low impact. You know, it's advertising very clearly this hundred calories per can kind of thing. It like is one step beyond LaCroix, which everyone's been obsessed with, these kind of flavored seltzer waters. I mean, I think people are loving like fizzy things in general right now. They're just drinking a lot of carbonated things. Loganitas, thing uh, hop, hop water. Yeah, I mean, there's, and then again, I think that's a good example too. There's this sudden like um, comfort with or or interest, curiosity in these, the what Nielsen would call ready to drink, but these kind of canned, it's all it's all done for you. The the pre-mixed cocktails, the you know, fizzy water. It's like if you just somehow it's like irresistible already in this package that you can just crack open. Um so I think there were like a lot of these things, it being kind of perceived as a wellness thing, it feeling similar already to these other types of trending beverages. And then somehow it did what Zima, which is the same thing, was never able to do, which is it didn't, um, it somehow as it, it did not get branded as like a explicitly feminine type of beverage. It like has this wide appeal and there's like this whole subculture of white claw bros that um, love it. And it's actually, it's like, um, you know, it, it doesn't feel effeminate to be holding one instead of a Bud Light at you know, I, the I beer saw, pong table. I, I, where I saw it really make an impact was we went to the golf tournament in Napa, what was the Safeway Open last year. So that was in October. And, you know, they push wine there, um, you know, big rosé place the year before people were drinking rosé. And as we were there last year, every garbage can that you would walk by, it would <laughs> of White Claw and people out on the course drinking White Claw and um, you know and that was right in Napa where everybody's there coming up to go to the golf tournament and drink rosé and um, it, it was remarkable. So have you guys tried White Claw? I have. I, I <laughs> okay you all have. Yeah. yeah. Okay um, does anyone like it? I like it as a mixer so. Okay. <laughs> so, so do you like do you like Red Bull? Do you also like the taste of Red Bull? So, no, D drank Red Bull when I was in my, what was it, late 20s, early 30s, mixed with vodka if I was in Spain. <laughs> but no, other uh, don't drink it, in, not into energy drinks. I've never had a monster or anything like that. And, and the White Claw thing, I just, because everyone was talking about it and I work with a lot of younger people, I got a hold of some White Claw, brought it home, tried it, and just drinking it straight, no way. Um, but mixing it with a little um, Hansen's flavored vodka, um, it, it was actually not not too bad. So <laughs> we did uh, Todd Jolly from Sonoma's Best one day on a Wednesday, one of his Wednesday night tastings. He had a tasting of the different white claws for the people that hang out there, <laughs> and and there was a strong preference to I believe what is it peach um, in the group. Uh, but you know it 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 was. It was okay when it was ice cold, but the minute it warmed up, just got to the point you just couldn't drink right, it. Right, right. I, I just, I can't stand it. I find it disgusting. I really dislike the taste. And is there almost like an aspartame kind of totally, overtone to it? Totally. That, yeah. I mean, it tastes sweet. You know, we did, um, I did this big story about it last summer where I was kind of trying to impress upon people. It's flavored artificially sweetened malt liquor like it's not healthy for you there's nothing about it that's healthy for you it's yeah. gross and it's like the most kind of industrial manipulated 
product and it's sweet, like, you know, drink wine or a beer. Oh, you know, you know. Was anyway. that the most so, difficult um, thing you've done? That that like deep so, dive tasting on all well, of the seltzer brands. So we blind that like awful. Yeah, we blind tasted a lot of them. I think it was thirty eight. Whatever number it was, we put it in the headline how many we tasted. And um, I was spitting, of course, but I did it with my colleagues who like some of them. You know, they don't they don't get the whole spit bucket thing. <laughs> and um, I actually, I, so we tasted, you know, we blind tasted a bunch of different brands and not just White Claw. I actually thought the um, least offensive was Truly, which is the brand owned by Boston Beer Company, which is Sam Adams. That was like the least, it had the least flavor, <laughs> which <laughs> made it the best. But, you know, I'm just like, I don't know. I mean, I like a LaCroix. I don't, I don't mind those at all. I don't find them kind of saccharine, but um, I just don't. I don't get it. I love a delicious light beer. Um, Esther, but. so uh, Jen Wall from Barefoot Wines is a friend of mine. And, you know, Barefoot through Gallo just started their, what do yeah. they call it, spritzer. And her whole point with, with her brand or her spritzer is that it's, it's wine-based. Um, have you tasted any that were wine-based? Are they any worse or any better? I haven't tasted, um, I haven't tasted the Barefoot Spritzer. Okay, there's one brand that's, that's local here. Um, the offices are in San Francisco, but it's made in Sebastopol. It's called Fix, F-I-C-K-S. And um, that is derived from orange. Like that's the, what gets fermented is like oranges or orange juice. And that's actually good. It, it like it kind of, it tastes like a LaCroix. It tastes like kind of real fruit flavor not that kind of artificial aspartame kind of thing. And um, it's not too sweet. I like that. I haven't tasted the barefoot one, so I shouldn't say. Gallo also has, um, it's a, I guess it's a vodka soda, a canned vodka soda called High Noon. Hmm. Um, yeah. But don't, don't you guys think that a part of that though is that people have recognized the fact that they, especially in social situations, want to have something in their hand. And instead of having something that's, you know, 18%, 12%, to be drinking something that's, you know, 5% alcohol that you can just kind of continuously drink. Just, I mean, the fact that people are drinking Lagunitas hop water, where it's, it's something that has a little hoppiness to it, but they have one that has um, alcohol and then one that has zero alcohol in it. Uh, Just so sort of like you're, it's a social thing where you know your hands are going to want to be busy. It's almost like a crutch uh, that people are using. And then it, you know, you can drink, you can crush 12 White Claws probably in, in a few hours at the beach. If, <laughs> and, and, not, not. and not really get, you know, you're probably not that buzzed, but if you put down. Uh, two, I think 12, you'd be buzzed. I mean, it's like drinking 12 beers. They're is like, it really? Is it that yeah. strong? Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say that without looking it up, but... Um, yeah, you're about right. It's about the same alcohol percentage, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 12 beers, I'd be dead. I well, mean, sorry, it's, probably it's, not, but... <laughs> it's kind of the same idea of canned wine. Like, do people realize when they when they crack a bottle of canned wine that, a th- that you know... It's half a bottle. It's half a bottle. half a bottle. My fiance will crack one open. You know, it's like if, if we haven't opened a, um, a bottle and if it's... He he often starts drinking a little earlier in the day than I do, <laughs> and um, we we usually have some canned wine, and he'll crack it open. And like a couple Sundays ago, he didn't even realize he'd like he drunk three, 
<laughs> That's a bottle and a half of wine before dinner. <laughs> yeah. And if and if he's lucky, it's you know rose and it's only twelve percent alcohol, but <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. No, well, I yeah, yeah. I think you know, there's a lot of um well there's a lot of there's a lot of good canned wine out there. There's a lot of really good canned wine out there now. So the headline here is Esther Mobley is sheltering in place with canned wine, but no seltzers. <laughs> No hard seltzers. <laughs> no hard seltzers. No hard seltzers. We have real seltzer. We have like a, we have a soda stream. I make, I, you know, I love making like a little aperitif kind of cocktail at the end of the day. That's my jam. A little sparkling wine, a little seltzer water, some kind of vermouth or Amaro. Um, I mean, I'm so into that. And to me, that fulfills the like, I can have something kind of light and spritzy, not high in alcohol, sip it, have it in my hand. Um, but you know, doesn't taste like crap. Doesn't taste like crap, and it's not you know pre-made for me in a can. <laughs> yeah, something about having a spritz at before five o'clock. It seems okay. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of, I was going to ask you, Esther, what kind of cocktails you like to drink. I actually wore my Negroni shirt today. Oh, so I, I love it. A, I figured I, I was assuming you'd be a Negroni girl. I do like. Negronis, although gosh, they're strong. Like it's you know, it's a lot. It's all um, liquor. <laughs> it's yeah. all liquor. There's nothing yeah. mitigating that. One one thing, um, we did a we did a cocktail Zoom class for Chronicle subscribers a couple weeks ago, and I made a cocktail that's known as a Negroni Sabagliato, a mistaken Negroni, yeah. where you replace the gin with um, sparkling wine, and that is so friggin' good. Like yeah. your sweet vermouth, Campari and um sparkling wine in equal parts basically that's delicious that would that's, go over very well in my household yeah. yeah and um it's funny then uh you know the, but, but you don't it doesn't have to be campari um saint george spirits in alameda actually makes a really good campari like aperitivo liqueur called bruto americano mm. um another thing we've been doing is uh um Palomas, we like those. Fresh squeezed grapefruit juice and mezcal, maybe a little simple nice. syrup if the grapefruit's really tart. Yeah. I like I like that a lot too. Yeah, this t-shirt actually came from Negroni Week that we were doing at the Girl in the Fig, probably for three years running. And and we would make that cocktail that you were talking about, Esther, with the sparkling wine in place of the in place of the gin. And we I think we had five or six different takes on Negroni. So it was fun to kind of play around. But always that that Campari is what I like to that's that bitterness. Bitter, yeah. 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 I mean, I I just I like like that with just soda water too. Um, I'll do that. Or and we I love vermouth. Like I drink a lot of vermouth just on the rocks or with a little soda water or with a little sparkling wine and a little citrus peel. To me, that's super, super good. Yeah, vermouth and sherries just still, I don't think, yeah. have quite hit their potential in the market for, for aperitifs. They're, I mean, the flavors, especially people that drink wine. I mean, if you're into complex flavors, simple, but sometimes really complex, like depending on how they're presented are, are just one of those um, untapped markets that feel like every once in a while, you know, like every five years, the uh, someone thinks, oh, this is, this is going to be the coolest thing. And the bar starts buying, you know, you get like 10 sherries or something lined up behind your bar. And, and then it just, you just never seem to sell them. People don't think of them as a, that's a shame. That's a shame. I love sherry. And yeah, I, um, I live near this great little specialty shop called the Spanish table and uh, it's open it's a grocery store, even though it kind of feels a little like 
more special than just a regular grocery store. But um, I went there and bought some Spanish vermouth and sherry and like a manzanilla as a little aperitif at the end of the day. So good. I love that kind of briny, salty. I mean, it makes me wish I had oysters, (laughs) which I don't. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Well, what are the food writers at the at the paper doing? Are they are they doing stories about um, taking t- uh, delivery or takeout food or? So um, our restaurant critic Soleil Ho and I, she and I last weekend um, had a piece in the paper where we wrote about things we've gotten as delivery and takeout, food and drinks. So there's some version of that. I mean, she's not going to like do a restaurant review every week of a takeout item. Um, yeah. But, you know, we've been doing all sorts of stuff in the food department. Our editor, Tara Duggan, is leading us in it. And um, there's a lot, you know, we've done these kind of exhaustive databases of grocery delivery options in the Bay Area, of restaurants that are doing takeout and delivery. Um, Janelle Bitker, one of our other food reporters, is doing an incredible job kind of hitting hard the news angle of what's happening, um, you know, restaurants that are closing, restaurants that are opening in the midst of all this. Um, Restaurants are getting broken into a lot while they're being closed. That's been really sad to see. Um, All sorts of, and then we're doing a lot of like, um, kind of what we view as public service food stories, information stories on how you should be handling food in this era of contamination, uh, stories about you know, food stamps and food pantries. And there's a lot um, to write about, certainly, although it's all, you know, it's all kind of weird and different. Yeah, pandemic based or. Yeah, I mean, on uh, Tuesday, I think it was when Governor Newsom gave his speech in which he gave some indications of the guidelines that restaurants might be required to follow when they finally do reopen. I mean, that was a big news story for us. And he indicated that they might have to be taking people's temperatures at the door, that all servers would potentially have to be wearing masks and gloves. I mean, you know, these are kind of that they'd have to significantly reduce their capacity. So um, it's, I mean, it's an interesting time. And I think, you know, the, of course, so many sectors of our society are being affected by this in, I mean, what sector isn't being affected by this? But um, I think the world of restaurants is like going to be one of the kind of major stories of what this means. And there's so many jobs, so many kind of communities and neighborhoods that are tied up in restaurants, small businesses, immigrants. I mean, it's just, there's, you know, restaurants, uh, kind of are this gateway to so much of our culture and um, we'll just have to see how they hang on during this time. Yeah, I just got a text the other day from um, someone at the Fairmont in upper management that said that they are starting to take uh, room reservations May 5th. So you can now book a room for May 5th Hmm. Um, at the Fairmont in Sonoma. And, And I don't know if that means, you know, they're probably just hedging their bets thinking, you know, take the reservations. If we don't end up um, lifting the shelter in place, then you know you can always cancel them and people will understand and you can refund the money. But um, I, I didn't think about that until you just said it about me wearing a mask and gloves, opening up a bottle of wine at the table 
And remember, like you were saying, Sam, like being careful not to touch the neck of the bottle to the glass or, you know, because then I'm putting that bottle down on the table for people to touch themselves and the cork. And it's going to get weird when we go yeah, back I mean, initially. That there's, you can see, you know, going to a, a casual restaurant and dealing with uh, masked and gloved uh, servers and, you know, people behind a counter or something like that. But, you know, it's hard to imagine fine dining, um, you know, with a psalm in a suit and tie, uh, you know, wearing a, a bandana around his face and some rubber gloves. It's just like, those are, <laughs> that's not a, who go? How could you go and spend, you know, that kind of money? How could you go to a, a Michelin star kind of restaurant and, and you know, spend a few hundred dollars a person and you know never actually see the face of your waiter? I mean, that's just like right. I, I don't. How does that? That's not, that's not a feasible. It's not a survivable situation. I, I can't imagine. I mean, let alone like restaurants having to, you know, a world that you know lives on such slim margins as it is you know, saying, all right, well, you can only, you know, serve 50% of your capacity now. Like, how is that, you know, how do you pay rent and employees and cooks and, you know, servers and front of house and buy food and know that you can only, you know, you're only going to be able to max out at 50% of, of what you can do. You know, it's, it's going to be, um, um, it's, it's going to be tough. It's going to be, it's going to be a lot of adjustments in this, uh, the new normal, whatever that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought of one benefit to having that mask on for those, for those um, customers that are just absolute assholes that you can sort of mutter under your breath, kind of, you know, fuck you. <laughs> You're walking away from the table. Like, Excuse me. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Actually, I know that you, you have to run here in a minute, but is there any, anything on the horizon, anything interesting that uh, you can, you can sort of sneak peek us on, or, you know, what you're working on or what, <laughs> What are you thinking about, uh, you know, as this kind of goes on for the next month or so? Well, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to figure it out week to week, like everyone, and trying to understand what this is going to mean for the wine industry, for smaller independent producers, especially. I mean, yeah, I think this this week we got some hard data about craft brewery sales in California that they're down 43% despite this peak in drinking. I'm interested to see whether that continues to be true for um, wineries also. Um, I hope not. Um, but, and the, I know, fingers crossed. Um, but basically, I'm, I'm just keeping my eyes open. I mean, really like, uh, you know, looking for, for kind of deeper stories about how this is affecting people in the wine industry and what it means for them. Um, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Good. Yeah. All right, guys, any shout outs you want to give? Uh, look for our virtual, our next virtual tasting, uh, winemakers podcast, virtual tasting with a couple of uh, Bart's wines and a couple of 16600 wines uh, May 1st. So we'll get an email out. Well, hopefully by the time this is running, You'll have seen that email and uh, I've already, already started uh, signing up and we can get the wine sent out to you. But the first one was a blast and, you know, it's a good hangout. We talked about as, the wine as much as, as we needed to, but got to have some interaction with the, the listeners and, and such. So we'll be doing another one of those. Um, 
keep your keep your eyes and ears peeled. Yeah, I think having you out in the vineyard, Sam, was was a real cool thing. That was a great idea because it it really gave a different perspective. As just instead of you sitting at your table right. at home, to actually have you in the vineyard of where the wines were from was was a good call. Yeah, and so I don't I'll, know what wines we're going to do next, but I'll have to be somewhere with self and reception. <laughs> I'll yeah. I'll do the next one from down at the winery, so um, that way we can you know at least maybe walk around and look at some equipment while it's going on too. So cool. Um, cool. So I was just going to say thanks to all those people that participated in our our our, uh, our virtual tasting. It was very successful. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah. All right, and as always, shout out to uh, our friends in the biz uh, trying to open up Valley Bar and Bottle to Todd Jolly at Sonoma's Best. Hope you guys are all doing good. And um, the girl in the fig uh, has actually started doing um, pick up again this week. I think through the Fig Cafe, so they're they're ramping up again to to start bringing food to people. And uh, and Ari at uh, Glen Ellen Star um, doing some fun stuff. So. Good to see people getting creative. Yeah. Esther, thanks a lot for your time. We do appreciate it. This was a blast. Thanks for um, letting me escape from my work day for a little bit. Yeah, and let your, um, your for. tell your fiance, thank you for letting us um, see what real podcast equipment looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, is the ex this isn't really much, but this is the extent of it. He has a little, he and his friends have a um, podcast they do sometimes about web development <laughs> oh now is this something that the average person can listen to yes definitely well, but you give you them might, a plug you might not understand any of it it's called the giant giant dev dev cast they um work on these video game websites including one called giant bomb and uh it's it's great banter it's a lot over my head but that's why he's smarter than me so yeah, so any of you tech nerds out there that want to get in on a cool podcast. <laughs> yeah. All right, um, well, you guys. Thanks, guys. This was a blast. You bet. Thank so you, Esther. Stay safe. Bye. Bye.